So this evening, we are going to be, I'm Jerry, I don't know if you heard that or not, uh, we're going to be finishing our series on the book of James, and I am uh, glad you guys stuck around. We've been going through James all semester, and we're coming to the end, which means we're also coming to the end of the semester. We only have two more large groups after this. Can you believe that? Seniors, you just have two more large groups after this. This is crazy. So... We're coming to the end of James. We're in James chapter 5, so you can turn with me. Um, i got to turn with one hand. Okay. And I have my glasses, so this is good. All right, we're going to be reading James 5. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 18. So feel free to read along with me. James says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the, for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might uh, not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. All right, a couple preliminary comments here. I want to acknowledge that this is probably the most difficult passage in the book of James Theologically, it might be the most difficult, one of the more difficult passages in the whole New Testament, theologically. And so this was one of those times where I was preparing the message this week, and I thought, what silly person decided this would be a good large group talk? And then I remembered it was me, and it's okay. Um, But there's a a couple of things that I, well, so we're going to be talking about prayer and the power of prayer. And so our outlines will be pretty simple. We're going to talk about the power of prayer. We're going to talk about how that power uh, is applied to one specific area, and that's physical healing. And then we're going to be talking about the requirements of powerful prayer. And finally, we're going to pause at two points while I'm sharing, and we're going to address two difficult theological questions that this passage raises. And I promise that I will not address them to your satisfaction, but we're going to uh, at least begin to address them because they are challenging. Um, before we talk about this, I, I want I want to also share. You need to know something about me in order for uh, to understand uh, where I'm coming from with this. If you were to take all churches and sort of put them on a range on what we might call like the charismatic scale. Right, and so that would mean, so it applied to churches, charismatic would mean a, a church that uh, sort of expects supernatural things to occur and expects to experience them. And so you were to go all the way to one end and you had like a really charismatic church. So this would be a church where um, during the service you'd expect someone to stand up and, and, and uh, do prophecy, meaning uh, sharing what they believe God's sharing with them. They would expect to see maybe miraculous healing occur in the service. They would expect to see something called speaking in tongues, which is like speaking in a language from heaven. All right, so that's one far end. And if you weren't used to this kind of service and you were to show up, you might feel like a little uncomfortable. It might seem a little, a little um, 
I don't know, uh, strange to you, right? But that's, that's, that, that'd be because you're not used to it, right? And you were to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. Over here, you would have sort of the most boring church service you could imagine, right? And so the most spectacular thing that would happen in this service would be that you didn't fall asleep, right? So that would be the amazing thing. And if you were to put the churches that I attend somewhere in the spectrum, we'd be bumping up like as far against this boundary as you can get, right? My church is, if you've been there, it's, it's a very simple service. Not much spectacular happens. We, we teach the word of God and we sing uh, quietly and we don't clap. And, you know, so you get the idea, right? And so I'm way over here. So as I'm sharing with you about what I believe is true about prayer and about healing, I want you to keep that perspective in mind of where I'm coming from here because I really do believe that, that God is telling us something important here about prayer. All right, so the three things we'll look at again are the power of prayer, that power applied to healing, and finally, uh, the requirements of powerful prayer. All right, so the power of prayer. James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It has great power as it is working. Meaning, prayer works. It, it does something. Things are accomplished and happen as a result of prayer that wouldn't otherwise happen. So this world that you're in today is different because of prayer. There are people who are alive today, maybe even potentially people in this room who are alive, because people prayed for them and who otherwise might not still be alive today, right? There are people who are healthy because people prayed for them to become healthy who otherwise may not have become healthy. There are car accidents that have been avoided because of prayers for safe travel. There are acts of violence that have been prevented because of prayers for safety. There are people who know Jesus, again, maybe in this very room, who wouldn't have known Jesus, come to know him, if people hadn't prayed for them. Some of you are fortunate enough to have parents who prayed for you growing up and who are still praying for you. Think about how different your life might be today because you had people dedicated to praying for you, doing something that is powerful and effective. And I really do believe this is true, that prayer actually accomplishes things in our world. So a number of years ago, I don't know how long ago, it might have been like before you guys were born, there was this uh, ad campaign for a regional airline. And it went viral, whatever that meant, before social media was really a big thing. I, I don't know, like collegehumor.com or something it was on. That was a website from back in the day. Um, and the, the, the promotion was this. So you would like show up at an airport that you were flying out of, and they had the, uh, a TV set up. It was um, like a TV with a camera on top. And you'd scan your, your boarding pass. And when you did, uh, Santa Claus, a guy dressed as Santa at least, would appear, and he would say, address you by name and ask you what you wanted for Christmas, which was kind of cool, right? If you had kids flying with you, it was, it was near Christmas time too, so that makes the promotion make a little bit more sense, right? And so then you, you were kind of entertained during the flight, and, and you would board the flight, and what you didn't know is at the airport you were getting ready to land on, airport, uh, airline employees were running around to stores buying everything the passengers had asked for for Christmas. So when they arrived at baggage claim, there were all these gifts uh, you know, labeled for them. 
And so, like, one guy got a tablet, one guy got a new phone, a kid got, a, like, an action figure he was asking for, some guy got a pair of socks. And, but the crowning thing was this one family had asked for a big screen TV, and they, they got this big screen TV at back, checkout. And it's pretty cool. And it, the, the video went viral. People really enjoyed it. It was this feel-good thing. But I have to admit, when I saw it, my first thought was, that poor guy who asked for socks, right? He had to have seen the big screen TV later and said, oh my gosh, I did not ask for enough, right? And so my concern when it comes to prayer, as we hear about how powerful it is, I don't want any of us to arrive in heaven and, getting, and, and realize that we're getting the spiritual equivalent of a pair of socks, right? Because apparently God answers prayers. Powerful things happen as a result of prayer. And I hope that when we arrive in heaven, we will get the spiritual equivalent of a big screen TV. And what I think that would mean is I hope all of us, when we arrive in heaven, are able to spend time with people for eternity who are there with us because we spent time praying for them that they would come to know the Lord. So the first thing I want you to know is that prayer really is powerful. It does things. It accomplishes things that otherwise wouldn't happen according to this passage. But this is where we run into our first theological difficulty. Because I believe everything I just said is true. But I also believe that God is God. Meaning that there's certain attributes that God has because he is God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. He is all-good. And he is unchanging and unchangeable. The theological term for this is that he's immutable. And because he is unchanging, his plan is unchanging as well. And so do you see the theological conundrum here? How is it that God can be all-powerful, all-knowing, and unchanging, and that prayer can actually accomplish something real and significant and change the course of history? Do you see that, that conundrum? There is this tension here. Does prayer change things, or is God... God. And this tension shouldn't surprise us too much. If you have been uh, around Christianity for too long, you probably come to realize that our faith is full of these tensions. So for instance, here's one of those tensions. Is this book here written by God or is it written by people? And, and the answer is both. Right? And I don't mean like 50-50, right? I don't mean like half of this book's from God, and I have to spend time deciphering which half is from God and which half is from people. We believe that this book can be read as if it were written directly by God to us, so we can trust it like that. But we also acknowledge that it was written by many people over literally thousands of years. And so as I read it, there are things that I can learn by knowing about the circumstances of the people that I'm reading it, right? So... It's written by God, and it's written by man, and there's this, this tension. Both are true, but I don't fully understand how those things work together. Or how about this one? Is Jesus God, or is he a human? And the answer is, according to the scriptures, both. Both are true, and again, not half and half. He's not like Hercules, right? Kind of like half God, half man. He really is both, fully God and fully man. And we don't understand how that can be true, we don't logically compute it, but we read the scriptures, and it seems to be what it teaches, so we believe it. One last one. Is God three persons, or is he one being? And again, according to the scriptures, the answer is somehow he's both. That's why we refer to God as a trinity. And so there is a tension. 
between this reality that prayer really does change things and the reality that God is a God who, who is unchangeable. And so I know that's probably fully unsatisfying to you, but we're going to move on anyways. Uh, we don't have a question time this evening, and that was by plan. No, I'm just kidding. I'd be happy to talk with you about this later on. All right, so the first point James tells us about is that prayer is powerful. The second thing is he applies that truth to the area of physical healing. And now with one hand, I'm going to refine the book of James because for some reason I flipped through my Bible. There we are. Okay, so I'm going to reread verses 14 and 15. James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. As, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Okay. This is uncomfortable. There's at least three things in here that make me personally uncomfortable. And if you also go to churches that are fairly boring, you may be uncomfortable about some of these things too. So the first thing that makes me uncomfortable is the question of, is this passage saying we should pour oil on sick people? Is that what this is saying? And some of you are probably expecting me, knowing my church background, to say, well, actually, if you look at the Greek, what it says is don't pour oil on sick people. But that's not what it says. I actually think this is what the passage teaching. I don't think maybe you personally should be pouring oil on sick people, especially if they don't want you to. But I, I think this is a commandment for, for us as the body, as the church. And so I, in my church, if you come to leaders of the church and you say, like, I, I'm sick, we, we will come to your home. And as part of like a prayer service, we will pour not motor oil, this is an important distinction here. This is like olive oil. Remember, they had olive trees in ancient Israel. And uh, we will pray for you. And the, the idea is that oil is representative of God's spirit and his healing presence. And so, yeah, I, I actually think that is a legitimate application of this passage. The second kind of uncomfortable thing here is James seems to be connecting the idea of sickness and sin. Did you, connect, did you, did you catch that? Because he talks about someone is healed and their sins are forgiven. And that's uncomfortable. Is there a connection between physical sickness and sin? And the answer is, yeah, there, there is. There does appear to be, not only here, but in other places in Scripture. So let me say it this way. Sickness exists because sin exists. Sickness exists because sin exists. When God created the world... And, created people, there was not sickness. And until people re rebelled against God, until we rebelled against God, sickness didn't enter the world. And if we never had, it never would have. And so all sickness from COVID to cancer exists because sin has broken the created order. Now what this doesn't mean, very clearly, Jesus says extremely explicitly, is an individual person's sin is not necessarily connected to that individual person's, I'm sorry, the individual person's sickness is not necessarily connected to that individual person's sin, right? Does that make sense? So if you are sick, that doesn't mean there's a particular sin that you or like a family member has committed that has caused you to be sick. But sickness in general is, connect, is the cause or is caused by sin in general in this world, but not necessarily in the individual person. The second way it's connected is, is also uncomfortable. Apparently, from this passage and other passages, there are some circumstances in the New Testament where 
sin or uh, sickness is a discipline from God. As a result, as it's a way of God awakening you to sin and rebellion in your life. And so apparently, according to this passage, it is appropriate to ask the question, if you are sick, is there something I'm supposed to be noticing? Now, that's not always the case. In fact, I would say probably mostly not the case, but there are some examples in Scripture. And so I think sickness can be an opportunity to examine ourselves and to confess sin and ask God if there's sin that we were not aware of. But here's the last way that sickness and sin is connected, and I think this may be the most common. Sickness reveals sin. Sickness reveals sin. Imagine how easy it would be for you to always be kind and gentle and loving if you always felt really great. Imagine how, how easy that would be, right? So, like, I'm, I'm a dad, and do you know when it's hard for me to be a good dad? When I'm tired, or especially when I'm sick, or both, right? Like, my whole family caught a stomach bug, and I was, like, a terrible dad, right, for a period of time. I was just grumpy and grouchy because the sickness revealed that my heart isn't always in the right place in regards to my kids. C.S. Lewis, uh, who was a, a British philosopher, uh, in his very funny British way, uh, was commenting on if you meet someone and they seem to be a particularly, like, uh, maybe, uh, like a, you know they're Christian, but they seem to be a bad Christian because they're always kind of mean. He says, hey, who knows? Maybe that person just has really bad digestion, right? And, and, and the fact they always feel bad reveals the fact that that you would have probably responded the same way if you had the same physical condition. So sometimes being sick is an opportunity for us to realize some of the broken areas in our life that we're able to hide when we usually feel awesome, right? And so there, there apparently is a connection between sickness and sin, and that may be the most common. The third way this is uncomfortable, to me at least, is that, is the question, here's the question. Is James saying that prayer will always heal sick people. Is he saying that? Well, let me, let me read the passage. This is verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, nope, 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Well, that seems pretty clear. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. It appears to say that if someone is sick, you pray for them, they should get better. And I think you know why this is uncomfortable, right? We all know people who have been sick, who we have prayed for, who have not gotten better, right? Uh, as you, if you know me for a while, you know, I had a, a season in my life where I was dealing with chronic pain for a couple of years. I remember constantly praying that God would heal me. And he, he did not choose to do that in that period of time. And I would read passages like this and think, what's going on? What's wrong? Why is this not, there, there seems to be an equation here. Why is it not working? And there's, there's different answers people have had over different times. And some of them, I think, are, are, are dangerous and damaging. There's, there's one possible answer. People look at this passage that says that the prayer of faith will heal people. And they come to the conclusion that if someone is not healed when you pray for them, it must mean there's a problem with somebody's faith. Either the person praying doesn't have enough faith, the person who's sick doesn't have enough faith. And can you see how that might be dangerous? There was a pastor in Atlanta I read about a little while ago. And this is a tragic story. This pastor died of cancer 
without ever having told his congregation that he had cancer. Why? Because he taught scriptures this way. He taught that if your prayers aren't being answered, you need to have more faith, which generally meant something like kind of muscle up your faith or force doubt out of your mind, right? Uh, sort of ambiguous. And, and, and as a result, he couldn't acknowledge that he was sick because it was a failure, right? It, it, it showed that according to his theology that he didn't have enough faith. It wasn't something he could admit. And it's a tragic story. But I th- regardless of what this passage says, is saying here, I know it's not saying that. Do you know how I know that it's not saying that unanswered prayers are a result? By the way, this is difficult question number two of the passage. The reason I know that it's not saying that unanswered prayer is a result of a lack of faith is because of one particular unanswered prayer in scriptures. The scripture is prayed by one particular person in a garden. You guys know where I'm going with this? Jesus, as he was getting ready to be crucified, he knew this was coming, was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And his prayer, I'm I'm going to paraphrase him a little bit here. He basically prayed, Father, if there is a way that we can accomplish what we need to accomplish to save people from their sins without me dying on the cross, I would like to do that. Right? If there is a way that we can avoid the cross, because I know how terrible it's going to be, I would like that to happen. Father, please, let, let's do that instead. And, of course, we know what ended up happening. That prayer was not answered, at least not in a, the way Jesus wanted it to be. Ultimately, in that he died, he ended up dying on the cross. And you cannot look at that and say that prayer was not answered the way Jesus wanted it to because he didn't have faith. His faith, of course, was perfect. And so the, the reason why our prayers may not be answered sometimes can't possibly because, be because we have a lack of faith, right? Although maybe, you know, maybe sometimes we, we do have a lack of faith, but that's not why the prayers aren't being answered. Do you know what Jesus was actually lacking? And this is going to sound heretical when I say it. I promise you it's not. But it, it might, in a brief moment, sound like I'm saying something that's like really against the Bible. Bear with me, though, as I say it. Jesus did lack something in his prayer, and it was knowledge. You see, Remember how we said a minute ago, Jesus is God and man? So as God, Jesus is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. But as a person, he's a person like we are, meaning not omniscient, doesn't know everything. There's multiple places in the New Testament that make it clear that in a particular situation, Jesus, the person, didn't know everything. He said, I don't know when, the, when I'm going to be returning. People touch him. He doesn't know who touched him. And in this prayer, he acknowledges that he doesn't know for certain, if there is another way to accomplish what needs to be accomplished of people being saved from their sins. And so he prays, God, if there is a way that we can, um, we can accomplish this, let's do that instead. Yet he says at the end, not my will, but yours be done. And you and I also, when we pray, lack complete knowledge of the situation. There's an old movie this is a terrible pop culture reference because none of you all will remember this movie. Any of you seen Bruce Almighty? Okay. okay. Jim Carrey is in it. And in this movie, the plot line is God gives Jim Carrey God power. Right? He becomes like, he can become the guy who answers prayer, which is a obviously terrible idea. Um, but God says, all right, so you can, and that's been, I've only seen it once. And it was like 10 years ago. So if it's a terribly inappropriate movie, blame like 20-year-old Jerry, not 35-year-old Jerry for talking about the movie now. So 
God says, all right, so you are in charge of answering everyone's prayers. And it comes in the form of like, like year 2000 AOL email, you know, and, uh, and it's just this incredible list of prayer requests because everyone in the world is, yeah, is praying and he sees it and he thinks, all right, there's no way you can answer all these. So I'm just going to reply all yes. And he responds to everyone's prayer as yes. And of course, pandemonium breaks out because we as people don't know the results of what of how, what we're going to pray for, what, what that's going to lead to, unintended consequences, right? And so, a good, because of this, and even in a smaller scale, for instance, like a good parent won't give his children or her children everything they want because the parent knows more than the child knows, right? And so, my kids, uh, all three of them, when they were in diaper stage, none of them ever wanted their diapers to be changed. Right, they could have the most disgusting diaper, and I'm changing them, and they're like, "Stop it right now!" They're not speaking because they're they're babies, but they're hating, they're screaming, they're yelling, and I find myself thinking, "What? Like, do you do you want to just stay in your poop all day?" And if they could speak, you know what they would say? Yeah, I definitely do want to stay in my poop. This is warm. When you change me, I'm going to be cold, and there's going to be this weird wipe, and I'm not going to like it. Right. But I, as dad, know that that's not actually good for them. I know more than they do, and so I'm going to change them anyways. So they don't stay in their poop. Um, and <laughs> I guess the illustration here is we're kind of like the kids with the poopy diaper sometimes. We pray to God. We would rather sometimes have something that feels comfortable right now rather than have something that God knows is better for us but is uncomfortable. Uh, Tim Keller says this. God will give you, God will give you everything that you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew. God will give you everything that you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew. But we don't. So sometimes, God, it's a blessing. It's a good parent to a child when he knows that what is actually best for us is something other than we're asking for. And so in our prayers, we also need to say, not not my will, but yours be done. Uh, Last thing, we're going to go briefly here, is the requirement of prayer. The requirement of prayer. You may have you may have caught this earlier, but there's a really it's like a this is like a like a uh, catch here that's like really really big. So James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power while it is working. The problem with that verse is where it says a righteous person. At this point, I think, well, crud, maybe this whole talk was for nothing because there's a catch here. In order for my prayers to be powerful and effective, I have to be a righteous person, and I know that that often does not describe me, if it ever does. And so the question we have to ask is, does this mean that if I am not righteous, if I am less than righteous, God is less likely to answer my prayers? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes in this sense. I do believe that sin in our life can hinder our prayer life. Right? If I'm if I'm praying for someone like a family member to be healed or um uh someone who come to know Jesus doesn't know Jesus and I'm praying after uh just engaging in sin that I know is sin, right? But doing it anyways, I think that that hinders my ability to pray in faith to God to some extent. It, it limits it, my ability to experience communion with God, and I think that can limit 
the effectiveness of my prayer to some extent. Now, that doesn't mean that when you're sinning, you shouldn't pray, because God still hears us, because ultimately, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are righteous, not because of your life and how you live, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. And so we still pray, and God still hears us. If you know Jesus, you are righteous in a way that sin is not ultimate. It will wash off of you. It is not permanent, because ultimately God sees the righteousness of Christ in you. And even at your worst, God still hears your prayers. But still, what if you were able to eliminate huge areas of sin in your life? Do you think that maybe your prayer life might be more effective? And I think the answer is, is yeah, I think it would be. If you're able to live a life that's more holy, do you, I, I do think that would help and not hinder our prayer life. And what if, well, what if you were able to do the impossible? What if you were able to completely eliminate sin in your life? And what if you were able to actually eliminate, like, all past sin? Do you think your prayer life would be more effective? And the answer is obviously yes, but it's also impossible. But here's the really cool thing. If you were able to do that, that would mean that you were Jesus, the only person who's never sinned and isn't hindered in his prayers because of his sin. And you want to know it's amazing. Hebrews 7.25 tells you that Jesus spends all of his time praying for you. He is interceding for you, the scriptures say. He is asking his Father to do what is best for you, to care for you, and to love you. There is someone who is perfectly righteous, who is praying perfectly for you all the time. You have an advocate. I remember when I was in college, I had the world's worst advisor. Just... The world, you guys have advisors. I, I'm not going to ask if they're bad because that would be mean. I had the world's worst advisor. Every time I met with my advisor, I felt like I was in like a fight with this person. And, and I, it made me so sad. I actually had like nightmares for years after college that I didn't graduate. Like I was like in line to get my diploma and they skipped over my name because I, like my advi- I always believed my advisor was going to stop me from graduating. And it made me so sad because your advisor is supposed to be your advocate, the one who's working for you, helping you, has your best interest at heart. And I wanted an advocate. And you have an advocate, the most powerful advocate who is perfectly righteous, who is praying for you all the time. You know what that means? That means the absolute best for you has to happen because the most righteous person is constantly praying for it. Now, that might not mean your life turns out the way that you would have picked it, but it does mean this. Ultimately, you will look back on how God has seared your life, and you will say, if I had known everything God knew, I would have picked that for myself. And so I find this to be comforting in moments of darkness, that the most righteous person has my best interest of heart and is praying powerfully and effective for me. So, application here is do pray. And most importantly, be absolutely grateful for the one who is constantly praying for us.